this is the in focus podcast from the hindu hello and welcome to a special edition of in focus i am your host g sampath in the hindu's in focus series of podcasts we typically explain or analyze a news development in this episode however we take a break from news december 4th is world wildlife conservation day and this episode is part of a special initiative of the hindu to raise public awareness about the importance of wildlife protection in india more than 100 species of plants and animals in india currently figure in the red list of endangered species put out by the international union for conservation of nature or iucn many more are vulnerable so what exactly are the threats facing wildlife in india and how do we deal with them at a more fundamental level do we really appreciate why we should care about wildlife in the first place to help us understand what's at stake we are joined by two remarkable individuals who have in common a strong passion for wildlife janaki lenin is a journalist who specializes in wildlife science she has been involved in drafting plans for managing human animal conflict and has and has served as a member of the iucn she is also the author of every creature has a story what science reveals about animal behavior also joining us is prerna singh bindra a leading environmental journalist she is a visiting faculty at the national center for biological sciences and a recipient of the carl zeiss wildlife conservation award she is also the author of the vanishing india's wildlife crisis janaki prerna thank you so much for taking time out for this podcast thank you sampath it's a pleasure to be here Thanks, Sampath. My pleasure as well. Uh, to start with, uh, Prerna, I have a question on something which most people, when they uh, when they think about wildlife conservation, that's the first thing uh, which comes to their mind, uh, which is the problem of uh, poaching and illegal wildlife trade in in India and so on. So, despite so many advances in surveillance technology, uh, we still don't seem to be able to end the poaching menace. Why do you think this is the case? Yes, we see it is poaching is a huge problem in India and other countries because one the demand globally the demand for wildlife derivatives is huge. It is one of the biggest trade in value, second only to arms, narcotics, and the problem. Why I see one is the demand side. that that the demand for traditional Chinese medicines or even collection of uh, uh certain artifacts or insects like beetles like we hear of tiger skins and leopard skins and tiger bones or maybe ivory or rhino horn these are the big mega species in trade that we know of but there are innumerable smaller species like beetles uh birds pangolins monitor lizards you name it uh marine species uh that are in the trade and i think one key reason is that we don't take it seriously we think it's just animals you know we don't don't have we don't empower staff on the ground we don't empower forest departments we don't empower the wildlife crime control bureau to be able to tackle a crime of such scale and such magnitude and we are seeing the effects so it's not just trade in animal species we know that this spillover of of infectious diseases of zoonotic diseases one cause 
is or the humongous illegal wildlife trade and the markets that exist for it. Right. I think yeah, yeah. I think that's that's a very important point about the zoonotic uh, uh, diseases, which especially I think should ring a bell. Uh, an alarm bell for most people because you know as we are emerging from this pandemic janika do you want to add something to what prerna has to say on this yeah also pet trade like star tortoises for instance like prerna mentioned a whole bunch of creatures and star tortoise i mean they're small things they are not charismatic like uh, other large mammals or uh, creatures but uh, they every seizure you it's like thousands of star tortoises in one suitcase going we don't know where i mean it's been the trade has been going on for so long and we still don't know who is buying them what is the modus operandi what is the trade route and it's astonishing that, that it's still such a black hole of information Right. I am. I, I sort of wonder if there is some kind of connivance because there is. If if the state really wants to clamp down on something, it doesn't seem to really have a problem. And there's so much of discourse about terrorism and this. I mean, this is also like you know, maybe not comparable to terrorism, but it's something which is really serious. And it's hard to believe that uh, the state and the enforcement agencies are clueless, or is it just the fact that they're clueless, they're hoodwinked, they're tricked, or is it that there is lack of. Uh, uh a will to invest i think it's more it i think it's a lack of will to invest or take the understand the gravity of the situation and we've not even gone into the plant trade which is another nightmare i mean it's that that scale is so huge and there are in some cases there have been instances where we it has been found that those trafficking in drugs or those trafficking in arms are also trafficking in wildlife products and and you know it's always the be the last man on the ground who who might get caught and then the convictions are very low less than 1% you know the the it's the rare case and there have been cases where where the state has really there have been remarkable um where they, it has been cracked like uh, in central india tiger poaching ling ring was cracked but you know the, these are the problems we lower than 1% conviction rate the man is out on bail again and you don't catch the main guys where where the demand is where the the traders are you might catch the small man on the ground the last man on the ground so yeah lots of issues right i mean i have a list of like the key uh, sub themes i wanted to uh, get both of your views on uh, before we move to general questions so uh, janaki i know that you've worked on human animal conflict in certain capacities so uh, i mean with respect to elephants and leopards for instance so what to your mind are the main reasons for this conflict and where do we start when it comes to mitigating this conflict or resolving this conflict in a in a way that is sustainable Okay to my mind conflict is uh, more a state of mind because it's dependent on the villager or farmer uh, his ability to tolerate risk or loss so some farmers for instance in elephant country will say they are okay if elephants take crops because they also have to eat i mean that's literally how they will explain it so 
and then you go to another part of uh, india and there people will agitate and they'll um, block roads or they will garrow forest department officials in their offices so you really have these two sides to a spectrum of reactions to how people deal with wildlife but janaki you remember i mean you may remember of course uh, I, there is this photograph which i saw which won an award of people setting fire to an elephant's tail or whatever because uh, the elephant went and uh, surveyed their crops or something there lots of elephant cruelty kind of uh, photography and documentation which keeps popping up yeah that was in west bengal i don't think they were trying to set fire to the elephants they were th- throwing tar balls and you know it's sticky and it can uh cause um a lot of damage to the animals and people as well but i i wanted to uh say that that particular instance is a different situation because it was going the elephants are using these little plantations to go from one place to another and if you look at that landscape these plantations are literally feeding elephants to crops they have no other place to go to and with elephants it's a serious problem because it, they are reacting to things in the landscape it's not like i encroached on the forest and i bear the risk of elephant damaging my crops it is somebody mining somewhere far away displacing elephants who are then all over the countryside trying to figure out where to earn a, uh, where to find food and where to live so it's with elephants it's a real landscape level problem but if you're looking at leopards for instance it's much more um localized like you have to make sure your livestock is enclosed at night and someone is with the livestock during the day and that pretty much reduces the amount of loss a person suffers but mostly the ability of a person like if like if you look at dangars in maharashtra for instance they are a pastoral community they are almost single handedly sustaining wolves in the deccan okay so if you talk to them how can you withstand this loss they will just shrug it off they'll say oh the wolves are our brothers and you know we have to they have a story about how the dangars and the wolves came from the same parents and so it, the wolf is only taking what belongs to it so they are able to withstand the loss it's not as if they if they wolf takes that goat they're going to starve tomorrow but in some of elephant country that's how it is it's subsistence farming that elephants are taking and you need to bolster that those communities ability to take the loss and also the other thing that people don't realize is conflict is also a proxy like if uh, communities have an axe to grind with a forest department and they they feel that they are not being heard or you know they want to get even with the forest department over something then wildlife is the easy target right it's seen as the forest department's animal at least some species are seen as forest department's animals so then they go for it so you have all kinds of aspects to conflict and it's not one particular thing or another but by and large the what science says is habitat integrity is very very key to keeping conflict at a low ebb and um i think conservation 
the focus of conservation has to be much more on that. Right. Habitat integrity is one aspect. Of course, I think it's the biggest uh, a factor here. Then you spoke about uh, landscape-related issues and also conflict being a proxy. Prerna, you want to add anything on this question? Yes, it is. As, as Danki said, it's a big one. It's a big question. But I, 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 I agree with her. But also, I would, you know, it's, it's I think, conflict in many times is man-made. I mean, it's not, one, they're the larger issues of, habitat loss, habitat fragmentation, where where elephants would just pass by, but because they have been displaced due to mining, you know, villagers tell you, Gaj aate the, the elephants would come, we wouldn't even know. We would see their footprints the next day. But now when they come, they create havoc and we lose about 500 people every year to elephants. And I mean, elephants are also burned, killed, poisoned in retaliation. I mean, um, as, as Janki said, that throwing fire, in fact, I have an ongoing case against that particular practice, which was also done by the forest department at times, uh, sponsored by the state, because it's an incredibly cruel thing to do, to be throwing fire at elephants. Though, of course, the angst of the people is very much understood. So it's a very serious problem. It's crop loss, it's livestock loss, it's, it's loss of life. And of course, there's, it, it tells on long-term conservation because this remarkable acceptance of our people to live amongst, you know, such what we perceive as dangerous animals is, is will fray in the face of such conflict. It is fraying. So it's, and again, I would say that, you know, these, the, it's not taken uh, with the gravity that it should. We might have guidelines, we might have, you know, SOPs, but who actually understands what it is to have wildlife as neighbors and has both long-term strategies, short-term strategies, think empathic, you know, have strategies which are empathetic to both wildlife and people. So, I mean, it's too complex to, it takes, it will take an entire episode. So let's move on to the next question. I just have a point to add to that. You know, when you talk of conflict, it's only a few animals we are talking of. Elephants, tigers, crocodiles, leopards, monkeys, and things like that. But if you look at snakes, they kill 50,000 people a year. And that's much more than all these other animals put together and multiplied many times. And yet we don't talk about human-snake conflict. So, I mean, I don't understand why that happens, but it's just an interesting thing. And, and they're also killing people. They are also, you know, often taking life, biting at livestock and so livestock die. But you, you don't have people reacting to snake conflict, quote unquote, since it's not being called that, in the same way as they do with all these other mammals that and crocodiles that I mentioned. Is, is that possible, Janika? I'm just sort of thinking aloud here. Is it, is it, is it, uh, the, the, it's a very interesting point, the contrast between how we don't talk about uh, man-animal conflict when it comes to snakes who kill many more. Is it possible because when, when somebody goes and kills a snake, there is it's very very less likelihood of there being an outcry that you know a wildlife has been killed decimated whatever whereas if somebody uh, sets fire or throws a fireball at an elephant or kills a leopard it sort of creates it's it, the outcry comes much more 
uh, easily, so to speak, for people because they are more conventionally perceived wildlife than a snake. Is that could that be one factor? Well, a lot more wildlife gets killed without anyone taking photographs and posting it on social media. So I don't really know. Like leopards, like for instance, farmers not very far from here use live wire fences. And pretty much any animal that touches it just dies. And who is, this is on a daily basis. There's Nilgai in Haryana and places like that dying from these live wire friends. There's, there's sambal, there's jokal, there's everything that is Every day. Across the country. Yeah. So I still, I still don't get it. I mean, I don't have an answer, but I'm just throwing it there. I mentioned snakes just to have a different angle. Snakes are also, you know, it's not just, you know, if someone sees it and like say, and it happened in my society and I, you know, it, it, someone saw a snake killed it. It turned out to be a rat snake and we went, I went on this multi-tired awareness thing of, I mean, I'd been doing it, but I intensified it of, you know, awareness and what you should do and what is the season when they come in and, and a precaution and throw the Wildlife Protection Act at them. Like, you know, it's not that if you see an animal, it's dangerous. It's not just, and that is where conflict arises. You see a leopard, it's not conflict. You leave it alone, it will go away. And the same applies to snakes on most other animals. But you, we tend to corner it, crowd it, harass it, and it panics and it retaliates. Right. Going back to the the question earlier, I mean, I mean, it's very clear that a lot of it has to do with this conflict between man and animal has to do with uh, fragmentation or uh, destruction of habitat. So on this question, I wanted actually Prayerna and then uh, Janaki also uh, to come in. Like India's forest, uh, forested protected area, so to speak, according to whatever data I could find online is 5%, which is considered pretty low compared to most of the countries. So does India need to expand its protected areas, maybe make it 10% or whatever, I don't know if it's possible, or does it need to do a better job of protecting the already protected uh, wildlife or protected areas? Prerna, you can go first. Yeah, yeah. so uh, yeah, India's approximately 5% of terrestrial landscape is protected, which is half of the global average, which is 10%. So yes, um, while India has remarkable achievements in wildlife conservation in terms of, you know, largest number of elephants, uh, largest number of uh, tigers, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, protected areas, and then how much of it is effective protective uh, protected area? If you take into account that there are townships and temples and uh, roads and highways and dams and you know everything you can think of within those protected areas. So effectively, our protected area would be 2% as as roughly. So yes, one, we need to stop diverting. And I was part of the National Board of Wildlife Standing Committee to which these proposals for diversions of protected areas come for anything from laying a transmission line to, to say a dam which is going to eat up Panna Tiger Reserve, a third of the Panna Tiger Reserve. So what, you know, and it's horrifying the way we are diverting even protected areas. I'm not even speaking of reserve forests, which nobody, but even the holiest of the holy, which we think tiger reserves are, 
So, Prerna, this protected area means, I mean, every sanctuary from what I understand, it has got a core area, right, which is supposed to be like even tourists or even whatever, nobody no, can go at all. So, tiger reserves have core areas, about 20% of which roughly tourists are, you know, have access as, as per a Supreme Court order. So, not every, and from this core area also, you have roads going through, you have highways going through. Kana Tiger Reserve, I don't know, Kana, um, uh, Achanakma Tiger Reserve, Rajaji Tiger Reserve, six, four highways through Rajaji, three highways through Rajaji, the recent one expanding to six lanes. It is, I mean, in, you name any park, you have, you, now we are giving 30% of the, of, of Panna will be impacted by a dam in the heart of the reserve, that river linking scheme. So if, how protected are the protected areas is my first thing. Hands off at least from these mega destructive projects from our protected areas. So make them effective, right? That's the first thing. Do we need to expand? Yes, we do need to expand. We need to expand not just our national parks and sanctuaries in consultation with local communities. We need to have more protected areas and we need to also have graded protected areas. There are conservation reserves, there are community reserves, which are more inclusive, there is, we need to have, we give some kind of protection, whether even graded protection to elephant reserves. They are only administrative in, in nature. There is no legal protection. So at least an eco-sensitive zone where you kind of say, okay, the, this is where mining will not happen or something which totally alters and destroys the habitat. So key wildlife corridors, key elephant areas, other critically endangered species. I know, I, I mean, it's one just seems to speak of elephant and tigers, but we have a host of other species which are far more critically endangered, great Indian bustard, lesser floricans, amphibians, birds, so many creatures that we need to pay attention to and give some level of protection. If we lose habitat, the creatures won't survive. I mean, and if we are on fragmenting habitat, even protected areas, how are large-sized migratory species, how are they supposed to survive in tiny islands? It's like cutting a Persian carpet into 100 pieces and saying, you know, it's the same thing. And that's what we are doing to our forests and protected areas. Right. I think that's a very e e relatable metaphor, cutting a Persian carpet into 100 pieces and expecting... It just becomes ineffective. You're just islanding animals into smaller and smaller inches and even if you're not even leaving the protected areas alone then what does lesser forests which don't have that level of protection right and janaki you want to come in on this question yeah i wanted to um say uh, repeat what prerna said in a different way i think what we can't see protected areas as the single um, solution to the problem we are facing today and as she said, we need to have different levels of uh, cooperation with different like communities, with uh, you know people in the landscape. And only then are you going to have enough habitat and connectivity between those forests, for instance, that can make any uh, sense to conservation. Otherwise, we are just, like she said, having little pieces here and there and what eventually they're all going to die out, right? Because you're going to have inbreeding within that forest and it's, it doesn't do uh, augur well for the species of that 
tiny piece of forest. So I think we need to look at the entire landscape and do conservation where possible. Where, where possible and where it's not possible? Or deemed to be not possible? Well, you don't say no. You work with whoever you can. Like even with mining companies, there's a mining company now in Tamil Nadu where they are reforesting or restoring their mined uh, lands. And it's extensive. They are literally replanting native species with the Oroville Botanical Gardens, for instance. They are. So you think it's? it looks like a bombed out place. It's all just craters and um, spoils of earth. But they are doing a fantastic job getting a forest back there. I'm not saying you should for, uh, mine and then do this. I'm just saying that even in places that it seems impossible to do conservation, it can be done. It just takes the will. Just one, one point. Thanks very much, um, Janki, for bringing that up. Landscape level, definitely, because so much of our wildlife is outside protected areas. So we have to work with, therefore, different solution, different protected areas. And then we think outside, how, who do we work with? What is the gradation of protection that can be given? And yes, um, you know, work with anybody and everybody to make conservation happen. Right. I mean, you, you, you're saying that we need to adopt different strategies for protected areas and conservation outside uh, protected area. That's a well-taken point. Now, I mean, earlier we spoke about how even in core areas, there is developmental work, there's diversion of uh, protected areas for various uh, mining or dams and so on. So I just wanted uh, a, a brief look from both of you, uh, going with Prerna first, on the prevailing consensus in India's policymaking circle, which today, whether we like it or not, is that environmental laws and regulations are impediments. They are an irritant to economic growth and India needs to prioritize growth above everything else if you want to reduce poverty, create jobs and so on and so forth. So how does one introduce or make wildlife conservation part of this policy design uh, equation so that you know it doesn't it's not seen as this irritant or an impediment for economic growth? How do I even address this question? It's Fundamentally, I mean, I, I know where you come from. I, it, this is something I've encountered every day of my life. And But how, you know, the, eco, the economics is a subset of ecological security. It's not the other way around. How would you... Okay, first, let's just look at whether Wildlife Act, Environment Act, Forest Act is an impediment. Okay, Prima, let me stop you there. Like you just said this very uh, like revolutionary thought. Economics is a subset of ecological se security. Which is precisely yeah. what I'm explaining, but two in two 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 ways. But first you say, is it an impediment? If you have hundred projects that come to the Environment um, Regulating Authority, the wildlife uh, the National Board on State Boards for Wildlife and the Forest Advisory Committee, the three regulatory bodies who look at environment, so forest and wildlife regulations. Whether a mine is, will happen, whether a road will be expanded through a protected area, through a forest, whether you'll, you'll have a dam on a river and, you know, drown fields of people and forest, etc., etc. How much is of poison uh, a cement industry is going to spew, how, whether it should happen next to a, um, a thriving town or a village, right? More 99% of the projects go through. 
99. The one person that go through are really, really rejected. It might be that the information is not complete or some such bureaucratic hurdle in between. The, since the use of the word hurdle. So how do you say when you have, you abs, you are, these are boards which are meant to safeguard forest, environment, wildlife. And they are facilitating industries which certainly by any science, any scientific assessment, knowledge, which we don't respect or take into account, they go ahead. And we are seeing the the impacts right now what was the what was the disaster in uh, uttarakhand the 2013 disaster what was it a, a consequence of that there was in construction was over all over the place what is daily a consequence of the city where i live in and can't breathe because you consistently uh, diluted regulations whether they be for the construction industry, which accounts for a third of the pollution load in this capital and other cities. I'm just talking about Delhi and CR since it's the capital and spoken more of and since I unfortunately stay there as well. And how, what is it doing to our children? What is it happening to the productivity? How does the man on the street work in these conditions? How are you economically productive? You've had, you've had schools shut down because of uh, pollution. You've had Diplomats go back, they, they, you know, Delhi was counted as a dangerous city because they were given, you know, because of its pollution. You've had people moving out because then not everyone has the luxury. If we don't have our forests, which birth our rivers, if we don't keep our mountains forested, where streams come from, Western Ghats, Himalayas, where, where, where will our water come from? How will we have industries without water? Therefore, Therefore, economics is a subset of its ecology. If we don't have ecological security, we can't even breathe. Oceans give us 50% of the air we breathe. One breath we owe to the forest. One breath we owe to the blue, to the ocean, literally. And what are we doing to our oceans? We're treating it like trash cans. Acidification, pollution, ports, senseless construction. What are we treating our rivers like? National waterways, they are lifelines. Cities have, you know, civilizations took birth there and then died out because the river died out. And they are our trash cans too. So, uh, Prerna, so, sorry to cut you short. I mean, so, you think, uh, how, how do you think this can be addressed? How do we bring in conservation into the policy equation? You think it's not, uh, in, in the absence of a general public consensus, it's impossible or you think, I mean, the way I look at it, should advocates of conservation and wildlife protection, should they be talking to uh, citizens, people, or should they be targeting businesses, targeting government, targeting policymakers? There are two ways one could go about it. Everyone. And that's been the task of, I mean, mine and I think most of my colleagues, including Janki, through her writing and everything. Because, see, you first you have to sit with governments and conservation has to be mainstreamed. Environment has to be mainstreamed. It has to be factored in every plan, everything that we plan because it's a it's a livelihood issue. It's a survival issue. Now, even if you look at just how our people depend on natural resources, just directly live depend on na natural resources, about 60% of our people, their livelihoods depend on them. So even forget the indirect thing that I was just talking of. So yes, it has to be mainstream. But, you know, 
citizens definitely and citizens need to be more aware it's a political issue it's not just about carrying a cloth bag or you know using a whatever eco friendly brush or whatever that's important but acting politically being aware being empowered is important and citizens are important because it's a democratic country if the government feels that citizens care then it becomes an electoral issue then it becomes is gets mainstream right media everybody everybody take every opportunity to speak to whoever we can right uh, janaki do you have any thoughts on uh, bringing conservation into this whole equation of laws and environmental uh, clearances and so on yeah it's just it always occurs to me we have the laws but it's just this amazing reluctance to implement them and then saying oh it has to be this this ministerial discretion to overrule every scientific body or you know committees that are set up under the ministry itself to say that this is being done in the for the greater good of the country and it's just if that were the case why even have environmental laws and then make a mockery of it i mean why would it just looks like there is no rule of law in this country then right 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 uh, we are running out of time so two quick uh, topics i wanted you to just come in because these i think would be of great interest to our listeners as well especially those who are interested in wildlife uh, at, at a series let's say at a moderate to high level one is of course uh, wildlife photography and i'm curious like there are two views on it one 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 view is that you know it helps to generate interest in wildlife endangered species and so on it sort of there's all, a lot of these prizes and it's even an industry in some sense but there are others who feel that it is intrusive and it's sort of uh, doing violence to the pristine uh, habitats of these endangered species so where do you guys uh, stand on this janik you want to go first well there are photographers and there are photographers right so basically i think i'm blaming the rise of social media so everyone wants to post a pretty picture and get lots of comments or likes on social media and they'll do anything for that and they've gone off road in grasslands to look for photographs they've like gone to nesting birds and i think sanctuary asia magazine took a stand a few years ago that they will not publish any shots of birds nests uh a few years ago and i think that kind of regulatory thing got shot down with social media because who is there to um regulate this and the more attention even if you were to say oh you know you are this is unethical even that is attention right even bad attention turns out to feed into this monster so i i really don't know how you can deal with um photo- photographers like that and they are uh, a real pain i mean this class of pho- photographers if like if you go to a tra- tiger reserve for instance and you have one of these photographers in your vehicle your day is gone because all they want to do is take tiger photographs they don't want to stop for mongooses or giant squirrels or any of these other smaller animals that won't get them as many likes i suppose but there are i mean having said that there are also photographers who uh, really do ethical photography like painting a picture of what it's really like for the creature for the people in that situation and i wish more photographers would take that 
line. Right. And uh, Prerna, what is your take on this whole wildlife photography business? I agree with Janki completely. Um, but the, the only thing, and, and, you know, the, the worst is the kind of disturbance that they cause to the animal and is, is just, you know, they, they should be a rally. Uh, you know, they should be wildlife's greatest tally because photographs speak a thousand words. And you, if you develop that sensitivity and empathy, because I feel that for the photographer, the thing is that it's the subject of the welfare should be paramount and then photography. But unfortunately, where are the photographers? And I do know very ethical photographers and, you know, their friends and they do a fantastic job of communicating the wonders of nature. But it's a fine balance. There isn't any kind of a code for photographers or something like that, which is out there? There is. Um, but as Janki said, you know, social media has no code. And in fact, even governments have taken out. I, I remember there was when it was bustard nesting season in Rajasthan or Gujarat, the government took out that the photographers will not be allowed. And then we had a, uh, I mean, I was involved in that. We had to take out a, a sort of a government order, a memo of sorts that, no uh, call back if you're seen you know you call back you use mimic the bird's call to so that the birds come out and then you can click a picture or whatever it be so they are birds so you know that the and this is the kind of unethical practices are, that are used and actually one had to take that out that if you're seen as doing that one morning and next time you're not here including for the guide I mean, you can kind of try regulating guides, but if only if there are guides and, you know, then there are people willing to pay all kinds of money. So it's, it has to be self-regulation at some level. Right. I don't know how anybody can regulate. I mean, I, I, I mean the last thing I wanted to, I expected to hear in this conversation was uh, social media related issues. But there we are. Uh, one one uh, last question, penultimate question, uh, which is related to wildlife photography. And that is uh, something which is becoming... Uh, more and more of an industry, many people say this is one way to fund wildlife conservation efforts and to preserve a wildlife area, and that is ecotourism. And I'm not, I, I have, uh, I, I don't know what to make of this because on the one hand, it's supposed to sort of generate uh, interest, develop empathy, make people aware and form a relationship with wildlife. But at the same time, if you go to a place like, you know, some of these reserves, the, the density of vehicles, the smoke, the honking, etc. It makes it, it makes a mockery of uh, a wildlife area. So, why do how do we look at this ecotourism kind of a thing as of today? Janaki, you want to go first? Well, you have to be clear about what ecotourism is, right? Uh, is it just because a place is set in nature, or I mean, like if you look at the uh, ask the government, it seems to think nature tourism or wildlife tourism as ecotourism. So you go stay in a luxury resort and you go around a, on a safari by jeep, and there is no attention paid to any of the other factors that should matter like environmental impact. So you have to look at how the place operates, how it is con constructed, what does it do for solid waste management, where does its septic water go, how much water is consumed, how do the visitors behave. You, you, 
and none of those things are really considered in india i mean you spoke about you mentioned how do visitors behave I mean, there's also something uh, to be said for dress code right you can't just dress in uh, fluorescent clothing and go right i mean there must be some kind of a dress code also and i've heard of some countries having a, a, an appropriate way to dress yourself when you go into a a wildlife area yeah you're supposed to dress in muted colors but i don't think that is as much of a problem as you know loud noise and like people have parties and resorts inside parks i mean is that the kind of behavior that should be condoned i mean if you're calling that ecotourism then it's like an oxymoronic term right away so in any case i do want to say that there are much smaller enterprises instead of these big chains of resorts of uh, luxury hotels there are like um, ramana atreya runs this llama camp in uh, eagle nest national park in um, arunachal pradesh which is ecotourism in its best sense of the word and there are uh, snow leopard conservancy runs homestays in ladakh and i think now they're going to start in spiti as well So there are small places like that all over the country maybe not so well known but who are doing or practicing ecotourism the way it should be right there is a way to do it and there is a way not to do it uh, prerna you want to chip in on this yeah again um, i think uh, janki said it most of it but what one point i would like to add it's not just the footprint in terms of the um uh, you know the the, the garbage disposal etc etc which is very important visitor uh, experience etc but also where are they situated what happens is most resorts especially in these high profile tiger reserves they kind of encircle the reserve they start coming up right on the um, you know edge at many times blocking animal movement to water uh, source which is on the other side and this is typically a case of like in colbert where you have over 100 resorts which block movement uh, to to the the forest contiguous forest as well as the river where animals go to drink water particularly in the pinch period and you have like janki said you have weddings there and you have you know all kinds of uh, rain part rain dances or whatever be but the whole fact of where are you sitting are you blocking and this is this is something it is again you know we are looking at hab- habitat loss habitat fragmentation and the fallout is conflict so it is an entire gamut of thing and you know uh, on, on just on the so that's one thing and the other is you, you, you know it's just it's, it's not just about seeing a tiger you know you want to you don't want to be caught in that madness where everyone wants to take a tiger picture or if you have not seen the tiger you have not seen anything i mean experience the forest yeah it's such a privilege to be in wilderness So yeah I mean I think and yes there are excellent examples um, of people doing things well and I I'm not going to name them here but there, there, there but there are really good places where you can go and um you know experience uh, even even within these these tiger reserves like and it's happening in other areas as well Kanha now uh, Taroba increasingly but you have excellent examples even which the government has done in Taroba where they have brought in you know the communities are handling entirely the tourism the buffer tourism uh so so they now see that benefit going to themselves and not the big lodges so when they manage 
So there is that benefit. I mean, and I, I, I've been, I was there for a long time and I realized that the people, when I'm speaking to the local people who first saw that particular tiger, because their tiger have names for better or worse, you know, a tiger becomes familiar. And that particular tiger, which used to cause or oh, kill two cattle, but now it, you know, it, they see that tourists, it's bringing in um, money, it's bringing in benefit, livelihood. And also uh, ancillary livelihood in terms of eateries, etc. There, it it has, um, you know, local communities need to benefit from any tourism that is there, and that's that's critical because they bear the brunt of living next to wildlife. Yeah, yeah. I think local communities having a stake and being involved in uh, conservation, I think it's it's a key factor here. And of course, as you said, rain dances and weddings inside a forest resort. Is that really ecotourism? That's something to think about. Now, we're running out of time. Yeah, One final question, uh, Prerna, uh, before we wind up. This is the last one for both of you, which is, I think I want to end on a very broad uh, note on this theme, which is like many people, especially journalists, I must say, they have this, uh, this, this skepticism. We are all skeptics in the media here. So there is, why should we worry about wildlife or tiger or whatever? Forget tigers. There is some random snake or spider in some forest, which I've never seen. I will never see in my whole life. Why does it matter if it's going to go extinct? Why should I care? Why should anybody care about that random spider or, or snake or whatever? So some final thoughts on why we should care about wildlife conservation. Prerna, you first. Yeah, so I'm not going to speak about the web of life and how each the you let one strand go and everything falls because that you can kind of look up on the internet. Let's just take one example, the vulture. And that's the first thing that comes to mind. About 97 to 99% of vultures went extinct in India in a period of 10 to 15 years. Not just in India, subcontinent. And what happened? You, what is the vulture? It's a scavenger. You had a uh, you know, a goat which was dead or a dog which was dead. And within, I remember in my lifetime, you know, within minutes, the vultures would, seconds vultures would swoop down and they would clean the carcass down to the bone. Nothing would be there. And that was a, they were the unpaid health sanitation um, authority, you know, service that they did. Because as they went extinct, you had this gap of nobody scavenging. And the dogs took over. When the dogs took over, they're A, not efficient scavengers. Crows come, dogs mainly. So one is the pathogens and the zoonotic diseases linked to that. Okay? Because you have this, this mess of unattended, half-eaten carcasses lying for days. And second, the dogs had something to feed on. And there are studies which linked an increase in rabies because their population spiked because you had food, right? And you had a spike in rabies diseases and therefore you had a health emergency at two levels because one species went, went extinct. And there are other such examples, you know, and the loss of a predator in local areas has meant that the herbivores have come up, which means that there are huge farmer losses in case of black pucks is what I'm talking about right now. I've seen it in Gujarat, I've seen it in Rajasthan, because you don't have a carnivore, the top predator, which was the cheetah, and wolves to some extent, are just not there. They've been wiped off. So, 
everything every single species matters we don't have the science we don't know enough what is causing what but we are seeing the impacts without realizing the causes or at times realizing the causes the corona pandemic is one there are other zoonotic diseases which have happened and are waiting to happen other pandemics that are waiting to happen but also also do we really want to be the only species on earth i mean look at the wonder the beauty the the amazing diversity the earth has and a wildlife species a healthy biodiversity is critical to maintain the natural ecosystems which keep us alive in every which way ecological security is critical right ecological security is something we go back to again and again and uh, as we conclude this janaki do you want to come in on this question you are saying i mean hindu readers would be familiar with your tagline which says uh, you love animals but you are not a conservationist so someone who is not a conservationist why do you think protecting wildlife should matter for all the reasons that prerna said maybe a question or two earlier about the air we breathe and the food we eat and if you're not going to have trees to clean the air put oxygen out plankton in the oceans to do the same thing what are we going to do i mean are we going to eat um some polluted you know mind something i mean it's going to be some kind of dystopian fiction that we live in and it's i, I i'm not a fan of it and i don't think i want to live in one in that kind of a world so people will have to ask themselves what kind of world they imagine themselves living in in the future right i think people will have to sort of introspect on this question when we covered quite a lot of ground uh, even though we exceeded the time we spoke about habitat fragmentation poaching illegal trade uh, the role of or the lack of uh, wildlife conservation figuring in economic uh, uh, thinking and policy making and of course we also spoke about wildlife photography and ecotourism i think there is a lot of food for thought here hopefully our listeners are enjoying this will enjoy it thank you so much janaki and prerna for joining us pleasure talking to both of you my pleasure thank you thank so you. much sampath it was a pleasure in focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by the Hindu. We'll see you soon.